Welcome to the Sum of It All Bad at Math podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Bad at Math, Dismantling Harmful Beliefs that Hinder Equitable Mathematics Education by Lydia Gonzalez. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're chatting about Chapter 9, Is the School System Broken?, And I got to tell you, Mark, I was hoping for a really quick yes or no. That's not what we got. Um, (laughs) It was a very thoughtful chapter. It starts with a little bit of a history of education. And I don't think we've talked about that before on one of our podcast episodes. Um, What hit you from that section? Well, Audrey, I was just reminded that it's not been that many years ago where I, I was able to learn a little bit about how this education system that we've inherited is really based on this factory model. And Audrey, I have to tell you, when I first heard that, and maybe for some of our listeners, you're reading about that in the, in this particular book. I mean, I was floored when I heard about it. And, you know, I think part of why I was so floored is like, it's like it made so much sense. Um, how some things like facing forward in straight rows and individual desks while listening to the teacher in the front, like all we need to do is pull up the black and white photos And we see the same thing in the early 1900s. And one of the things that really made me think about it was like, Audrey, it's even down to the bell system. Like in the factory, when there were certain times of the day, I'm like, Audrey, that's pretty heavy, right? It's really heavy. You know, the thing I, the thing I think about most when when people talk about the history of education is like, it's not that old. And yet it's old, like 200 years is not ancient, like sure. stuff in our country, but it's it's old enough. Um, but why does it look vastly the same if there are so many other things that 200 years ago right. do not look the same? Like habits that we said, yeah, that's not a good practice. Leeches, mm, not so much. You know, like, <laughs> right? why is it that we feel like we're going to keep perpetuating school to be the same thing where mm. so many other things we've let go of? So that makes me think about this question that she poses, the author poses, and she says, like, what are schools designed for? And I think that's something that we as a community of educators need to go to the carpet on. We need to like grapple with, we need to like Mm -hmm. really get in there and figure that out collectively, because I don't think we, we are on the same page as each other as a, as a group of educators and with our communities. Um, She does give two, um, ideas. She says one is that schools are there to develop the talents, abilities, and gifts that students bring to their fullest potential. Um, and the other one she says is that schools are there to challenge the inequities and improve society. What do you think about those two ideas or, or goals in general for school? Yeah, well, I mean, thinking about that first one with, you know, the idea of talents and abilities and gifts, I mean, it kind of led me to a quote that's that's in the chapter that says some students are being prepared to work while others are being prepared to lead. You know, there was that that study that was done comparing different fifth grades from different populations across a particular geographic area. And, you know, it really made me think about this idea of different classes preparing kids in a different way. Like, um, and I never heard of it said quite like that quote that some students being prepared to work while others being prepared to lead um that's certainly just reinforcing an inequitable system and i also think that it's kind of interesting how sometimes we look at it one way 
as educators professionally, but you and I are both parents. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting how, when you look at it from the parent lens, it can be a little different, right? Absolutely. I remember us talking about it as your, as your children got to a point where you had to make a decision around accelerated pathways or not. I am now knee deep in those conversations with Mm. uh, my own children's teachers. And you know, what's, what's hard is it's hard to think of taking away opportunities from your own children Mm. in order to potentially change the system and looking up and realizing taking my kid out and away from those opportunities is probably not going to change the system. So do I let my child sit in a, right? Do I, do I yeah. push them into an accelerated class or do right. I allow them to be in that class that they've been selected for knowing it's not what I think is right for education in general and yet recognizing that I can't change everything or not. It's a really weird space to be in. And I'm sure many of our listeners who have kids have had to navigate similar kind of sticky situations. Yeah, Audrey, it makes me think about like, how do we learn what we've learned as parents with that hat? And then how do we, when we switch the hat to educators, how can we sort of, you know, think about how we can best interrupt the system and make sure that all of our students can get the opportunities that are given to some students in these so-called accelerated pathways, right? Yeah, absolutely. So interestingly enough, in that example you were talking about, um, where they were talking about the fifth grade classrooms and whether mm-hmm. what they were preparing them for, um, in this study by Anion, one of them she found, one of the things she found was like, there were similarities in the instructional materials that were used, but differences in how the curriculum was enacted, which I thought was mm. super interesting, right? Same yeah. books, same materials, yep. but we're enacting it differently. Um, which, and furthermore, in the two working class schools, her words, that's how she's referring to these schools, wrote memorization of facts and following a procedure was highlighted. And I think that's super interesting because you and I have had several conversations where we've been with different um, communities of people who have talked to us about how important it is that we teach their children multiplication facts. And it comes from a different spot than trying to say multiplication is more important than anything else, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when that's happened, Audrey, before, like, I I really appreciate the fact that parents are advocating for their students. They're really, um, it's really what we want to see But then what I realized, though, is that they're advocating for something they haven't had access to. In other words, they they don't have the full picture of some of the things around the mathematics. And so they they are they are advocating for something that that is based on their definition of mathematics. And I think that that's something that is problematic because I want to um, support uh, our parents in advocating for their students because their students have been denied a high quality education and they're sticking up for their kid as they, as they should. So how can I best be someone who supports that even though I know that multiplication tables is not the thing that will be the difference maker for their child? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think where we have to go is we have to go to co-creation. And mm. what I think is difficult about that is I think that as educators, we come in saying we're going to co-create, but really what we mean is we're going to try to sway you to believe our opinion, right? Mm, like, right. Yeah. This, right. Like, it's please a come fake along. out. Yeah. yeah. It is a fake out. Come and listen to us, and we're going to convince you why our kind of math is the right kind of math. And I think 
I think we have to go about that differently. I, I had the privilege of listening to um, Professor John A. Powell this morning give a talk. And one of the points when he was talking about co-creation, he gave this great analogy to me that I think fits here. He said, you know, when he goes to the doctor, if he has um, heartburn and stomach ache and he goes in with his symptoms to say, doctors, just give me Tums. And the doctor gives him Tums and he goes home and has a heart attack. His family's going to come in and say, doctor, what are you doing? Like, and the doctor's going to say, well, he told me he had the symptoms and he wanted Tums. So I gave him Tums. And that's, that's essentially what we're, we've been doing in education, right? We've been telling you, I hear your symptoms, right? And I have the answer, <laughs> just, just take this medication. And there's no input from the other side. And so I think what we have to do instead is we have to mm. say, in his example, as a patient, I have symptoms that I need to figure out how to accurately describe to my physician. And as a physician, I need my physician to be there and to use all of her medical knowledge to make sense of my symptoms and pick out potentially the right diagnoses and the right steps to treatment. And then we need to partner together so that I actually get the treatment I need in order to feel better, right? And I think what we need to do with parents as educators, being in the seat for both of them, right? You and I are both in the seats of parents and educators is we need to have those conversations where it is fully like, let me hear you. Let me listen to these symptoms. Let me hear what you're saying about the fact my child does not know their basic facts. I am worried that my child cannot do computation. They are not getting a rigorous mathematics education. And as the person on the other side, the educator, maybe the physician's case can think about that and say, okay, based on that, here's what I'm hearing. And now together we craft, right? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like the, it's oh, the together yeah. we craft. It is not easy. And it would be so much easier to just say, let me just have you come to three parent nights. I'm going to talk to you for 30 minutes. I'm going to yeah. show you my best examples. Right. And you're going to believe me that I know what's right for your kid. That would be easier, but it's not right. And it's not going to work. We can tell it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. We have to feel, figure out what this co-creation looks like, I think. Yeah, and we, we have to let go of some of this positionality that sort of says that I'm the educator and the expert and yes. I'm here to to teach you. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying about this, this co-creation because I think to get there, we have to be humble and, and realize that we we need the parent to be on an even level with us and, and have that same positionality. Absolutely. Um, you know, that really makes me think about when I was reading this same section, Audrey, and with what you're talking about, just this whole idea of, of freedom or liberation as, as a theme that, that might be helpful here. Um, so like to go along with that, what degree of freedom should students have in school and how does this impact mathematics teaching and learning? Because you know when we read about those different fifth grade uh, in learning environments, what really struck me is that there was just a difference in the freedom as I was reading the page, Audrey, I think the word control jumped out at me multiple times. Mm -hmm. And so like this whole idea of like, what if, if control is part of it and we wanna make sure that we're providing more freedom to our students, what keeps us from relinquishing control in classrooms, inclu including mathematics in instruction, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I think that some of the control we've inherited in our structures of schooling, like if we go back to and do that history lesson of students sitting in straight rows and, and teachers up in front, you know, saying things for kids to remember. But I also think that some control is reinforced by how we define mathematics as this closed system where everything has been figured out and students uh, are not there to develop new thinking. They're there to receive the old thinking. 
Uh, and this reminds me of a story about a student named Edward in, in a school I was working in a long time ago. And what happened in that particular classroom is we, the teacher and I, that I, I was in a coaching job and the teacher and I were working together in the classroom. And we decided that we would give the students some freedom around solving a problem the way that made sense to them. And we had not done that a lot with this classroom. Um, and this teacher was, was very proficient in, in um, running her classroom. And there was a, a certain degree of control in that classroom. But in this particular instance, she decided to, to allow this freedom of students thinking about how to solve a problem. And what happened was, is this student came up with a way of solving the problem and it was around subtraction regrouping that I had never seen before. It was something completely novel to me. And it made sense mathematically. And, and the student knew how it made sense mathematically. He was able to explain it. He was able to share with the classroom. And the reason I'm sharing this, Audrey, is because I think it was so amazing how this happened because there was a degree of freedom that happened in the classroom that allowed that student to come up with something new, something that when I showed other adults, in subsequent years, nobody had seen a student think about something that way. So I think there's something pretty powerful to think about an eight-year-old coming up with something that adults had never seen before mm -hmm. and how, you know, that there's something around that idea of control that when we relinquish it, our kids can show their brilliance. Yeah. That's such a powerful connection that you're making there about the importance to allowing the space for that, providing the space for that. And the way that those words freedom and liberation are making you think of that in a different way. Yeah. So, I mean, all that said though, um, what does this mean for teachers? Because, you know, if we agree that students need to have a lesser degree of control and more self, uh, determination and liberation, um, wouldn't we think that teachers should have that same thing? Shouldn't they have some degree of freedom and liberation? And I wonder what that means in terms of how they engage in professional learning and, and things of that nature, Audrey. What do you think? Yeah, you know, a large part of the chapter is about professionalism. And I think I think the author makes a case for in, increasing the amount of autonomy teachers have um, and perhaps even as like a answer to an overabundance of responsibility and lack of autonomy teachers have. So currently in the system, teachers have a great deal of responsibility for the scores that come out and for what's happening in schools. And yet they have very little autonomy to choose what they're teaching and how they're teaching it and, and even when to go to the restroom during their day. Um, but I think one of the things that's, that's difficult about that is I don't think it's a switch from low autonomy, high responsibility over to high autonomy, low responsibility. I think mm -hmm. those places are just as difficult um, to manage. Um, and even there's, you know, there's a, there's a charter organization locally that, that struggles with that revolving door of teaching that, that the author talks about because of the high amount of autonomy the teachers have um, without the other side of the, you know, holding on to the responsibility. Right. And so that's a, that's a burnout situation for them too. So I think mm. I think it's important to think through these different aspects of professional professionalism. Um, she talks about more autonomy with decision-making. She talks about um, the opportunity to design assessments and have opportunities for reflection and collaboration. And even being a member of a decision-making team, being part of maybe a site leadership team 
Um, the opportunity to observe each other and work together throughout the school day, that's definitely one. We've seen a lot of teachers um, ask for more time uh, to do that that piece. Um, and then she talks about attending professional development and the, my favorite, having a sabbatical. <laughs> right, yeah. I think I'm due for a couple of those, Audrey. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where the funding is on that one. but uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, there's just a couple of details to work out on that. Um, yeah, you know, and I also noticed this notion that was brought up of uh, teachers writing articles and teachers presenting at conferences. And um, I thought it was interesting, made me start thinking about that and sort of how I got into doing that. And, um, and you know, and it also made me think about like, how do we take a stance as a presenter, like in going into that? Because, you know, I, I think that in some ways, presenting at a conference can be looked at as like, I have a bunch of knowledge and I'm going to get up there and share it with people and it's going to be very performative and and I'm recognized for that and uh, I get to see my name in lights and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think there's different stances you can take as a presenter. Um, I think one of the other stances you can take is that something that, you know, where you feel like you're learning when you're presenting and working with a group of people as much as you're, you're, you're taking away from it as much as you're giving to it because it's just the very nature of how you set up the professional learning. Um, I think it's a little different though, Audrey, than at the beginning of the time where you just say, I'm going to learn more in this presentation than you are, you know, you are going to. And I've, I've heard that said a few times and it doesn't always ring true though. It's, <laughs> that is, that is, that's a very polite way of saying that, Mark. I, yes, a hundred percent. You know, I think this, this idea of having teachers present at conferences is a really, is a really interesting one. And it's one that has a lot of nuances to it. Like, um, and so, as you know, I sit on a, a program committee that, that works for a large conference locally. And, and it's an ongoing, there's an ongoing question of like, we want more teachers to present and, and people want sessions that are thoughtfully researched and put together. And people have spent hours making them, designing them and teachers don't have hours and hours to design these sessions. And so mm. like, yes, let's have teachers present, but then we, we need to make that part of their learning journey. Um, and it, and to make them even reflect back to when we were talking about street data a couple seasons ago, mm -hmm. um, they talk about public learning. Wasn't that street data? But how my books mixed up? Mark, you're gonna have to correct me if I'm wrong. We'll put it in the okay. show notes if I've totally messed this up. Um, <laughs> but when they talk okay. about public learning, they talk about the space of saying like, um, you know, it matters to say, that you get to a space where you say, here's what I'm learning. And you have some opportunities for people to push back on it and mm -hmm. um, critique it and push you further that it's, it's the way of having a teacher without having a teacher. And I think that's what you're getting to when you, when you're describing this stance as a presenter about being open to learn, you know, you and I go into these sessions mm -hmm. and we often tell people when they ask us, we're like, we learn more by presenting than mm -hmm. many other things we do as, as practitioners that in preparing the presentation, and hearing people's thoughts in the presentation and in, in, in a workshop and, and seeing how people interact with the information and what other ideas come out, we gain a lot from, mm -hmm. from that time and effort. Um, but that's because it's a presentation of learning. It's authentic learning that we're talking about. And that's very different than coming in and saying, I've figured it all out, yeah. let me tell you. Um, and I don't think anyone intends to do it that way, um, but I don't think, I don't think we're, we, we, we understand really what this idea of professionalism is 
yet. And I think there's work there for all of us to, um, to grow in. Yeah, I, I, well said, Audrey. And I, I just think even just in professional learning in general, I, I think that, you know, thinking about writing an article or speaking at a conference, I wonder if we, you know, how far we can open up the possibilities for teachers in these in these things they can opt into to to in, in enhance their professionalism and of those colleagues that they work with. Because I, I can think of teachers who have part of their practice that would be great to share that may not be comfortable with writing an article or presenting at a conference. Those options may not align with their strengths. So like, how do we ensure professional learning opportunities are designed with the variability of our teachers in mind? Yeah, I really appreciate that. Our teachers have just as much variability as their students do. So I think it's really important to consider that. And I'm I'm going to believe that the intent of the list in the chapter is not that you go through it and check off one by one sure. for each and every teacher, but that there are aspects that each teacher could find themselves a space to continue to grow. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. Well, Audrey, as we wrap up this episode, uh, what's sticking with you? You know, Mark, I, I'm stuck by that question about the purpose of school, you know, and how yeah. we could co-create that with our communities. Um, I think I'm going to be thinking about that a bit more and and beyond maybe even the efforts that we're seeing locally to to talk about what it looks like for a student to graduate from our system or to promote from our system. But like, what is it we're trying to do with these seven and a quarter hours we have each day for 180 days? Like, what is it we think we're all about? Um, and how do we really co-create that um, is on my mind still. What about for you? Uh, just still the theme of freedom and liberation. You know, we we think about that with students, but um, I'm really curious to continue thinking about that with our teachers and our educators in general, you know, especially around professional learning, you know. How, how do we design professional learning so that teachers feel like they have a degree of freedom when they engage in it? Um, I think uh, like many teachers, I think I think back to staff meetings and professional learning where teachers are just looking at their watches, just like, when am I getting out of here? When can I go back and work in my room? How do we make professional learning so meaningful and such a sense of freedom and liberation that there's not a sense of I need to be somewhere else this is actually where I need to be because this is what's feeding my uh, soul and it's feeding my um, my brain and, and the ideas that I need for my students. And I'm so eager to change the lives of my students. And I know that the room I'm sitting in right now and the people I'm with, I'm going to co-create something that's going to do that. And uh, I I think that would be great if we can start to approach that. Yeah. So professional learning will no longer be the best comic joke of teacher's existence. I love it. I think that'd be a great place to be, Mark. Oh, that sounds great, Audrey. Thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will wrap up the book and chat about chapter 10 and 11, teaching math as a political act, and where do we go from here? And we will continue to discuss how we dismantle harmful beliefs that hinder equitable mathematics education. Until then, best wishes on rewriting the story of math.